John, you're a good staller, so <laughs> thanks. All right, take your Bible, First Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up the last ingredient on a life-giving, biblically prescribed solution. We talked about leaving, which is establishing a new trusted authority and a new source of approval and affirmation. So it's the right person in the right place where leaving has occurred, new leadership, new trust. Cleaving had to do with establishing an unrivaled relationship. So no competitors. I call that the security pill. And the pr- protecting your marriage is security. And that's why we did Proverbs 7. And now we're going to look at the word that has to do with the two shall become one. Uh, your Bible saying or in Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. So I'm going to talk about that, but I've asked you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 because I'm only going to talk about one word and there's no sense in turning to Genesis because you will be aware of that word. The word is becoming one. And I want to talk about that by way of beginning and then we're going to look at 1 Peter 3 for the application of how to do it. So let's talk about the third ingredient that makes marriage maximized. The third um, leg of the stool, the third pillar that makes marriage go, the two shall become one flesh. I'm going to call this the unity pill. So you've got the priority pill and all the prescription for a healthy home. So a healthy dose, dose of perspective. That was night number one last night. The priority pill this morning with leaving the security pill, having to do with cleaving, and now what I'm going to call the unity pill. So a prescription for a healthy home involves what I'm going to call unity. The two shall become one flesh, and I'm going to work quickly because we have a 155 deadline, and John's going to jump up and drag me off the stage, and that's an agreed-to consequence if I go long. Um, The word flesh, the two shall become one flesh. You want to ask yourself, so what does that mean? Is that physical union? Is that what that means, that there needs to be physical union in order to accomplish this goal? The answer to that is the physical union is an expression of a soulish union. Physical union is not necessary for intimacy. It's an expression of intimacy. The word flesh can be translated just as often soul. The two shall become one souled. Two entities become one entity. The two are no longer two, they are one. That's what Jesus said. Marriage involves a kind of union, a unity where two people become one in terms of how they function, how they operate. Uh, That's what the unity candle at a wedding is meant to typify. You have two candles lit by usually the bride's family and then the groom's family, and those candles are lit somewhere on the platform, and during the wedding ceremony, there is a unity installment, a figure, an illustration meant to communicate a marriage reality. Sometimes they'll do three-stranded cords. Sometimes they'll pour sand into one vessel as an evidence, a communication of what those candles representing two individual lives, two people capable of going their own way, doing their own thing, me, my, and, and, and such. And in order for marriage to become what marriage is, those individual lights will light that center light. 
And then the two individual lights will be extinguished. The bride and the groom will extinguish those lights that have been lighted by their parents. That's a symbol. It is meant to say it's no longer me and mine, it's we and ours. It's not your problem, it's my problem. It's our problem. It's not my money, it's our money. It's not your stuff, it's our stuff. I don't marry anybody who wants to say, I'm going to keep my account and he'll have his account. It'll be his money, my money. Well, that's a non-biblical marriage. It's just a direct contradiction of a reality. Everything that I have, she has, and everything she has, I have. That's what this means. Unity has to do with soulish oneness where two independents become united by covenant choice. And that's a figurative reality, and you're going to see that in the book of Ezekiel. I'm just going to quote some things and just kind of get us a running start just to drive home this point. But marriage involves unity. No, two, no longer two. Listen to Matthew 19, 5, where Jesus is talking and quoting this key statement. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now listen to what Jesus said as a commentary on that. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, and remember, a marriage is a a work of God. It's a miracle of God. You can't break what God makes. That's why divorce is such an issue. There are biblical allowances for divorce in the case of hard-hearted adultery or an unbeliever wanting to separate from a believer because the rules have changed. You can biblically dissolve a relationship based on hard-hearted adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever or believer for their biblical belief. But the goal of God is not divorce, it's marriage. And what God creates, he wants you to protect. And that's why he says what God has joined together, what God has created, this union is supernatural. Look, I don't, the courthouse has a certificate, I'll sign a license. If I do a wedding, it gets shipped to Sacramento or wherever it goes in our state. That validates it in the eyes of the state, but it's already validated and done by God. It's not my authority that marries anybody. It's God's authority because it's a God work. And the two are no longer two. They are one. That's the two shall become one soul, one flesh. Physical intimacy is the expression of soulish intimacy. Physical intimacy is the validation of of all three parts of the stool. I trust you, you're my leader. I trust you and I need you. I'm seeking your smile. You have an unrivaled place in my life. It's not two of us, it's us. And I want to express that soulish unity physically. Mark 10, 8, the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. So that's the concept, and you're going to see that becoming one concept illustrated figuratively, and I'm just going to quote it, Ezekiel 37, where it's symbolically pictured two becoming one in that particular Old Testament passage, which involves two nations, Judah and the sons of Israel and his companions, and another group, Joseph, the sons of Ephraim, 
and the house of Israel and his companions. And this is how it reads, and this will give you the flavor of what oneness involves. Two kingdoms becoming one entity, illustrated figuratively by two sticks, one kingdom with one head, coming out of two kingdoms with two heads. Ezekiel 37, 16, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel and his companions. So stick number one, Judah. Take another stick and write on it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel and his companions. Two sticks. Ezekiel 37, 17, Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king of all of them, and they will no longer will be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. So instead of a candle lighting ceremony, there's a stick joining ceremony as a reflection of the unity that marriage requires. So in order for your home to be what God would want it to be, there needs to be unity. Unity about what? Unity about everything that's value-driven. You're different, man and woman. You might come from different homes, sometimes different cultures. You're different. It's okay to be different because you like different kinds of cars or different kinds of food or different kinds of clothing or different kinds of carpet or different kinds of cars. Those are not value-driven issues. But when it says the two must become one, they must be united when it comes to, listen to me, values and vision. Where the kingdom is going and what matters in that kingdom. Things like finances, that's a value-driven function. How are we going to spend our money? Are we going to borrow or are we going to pay cash only? How are we going to discipline our children? That's a value-driven statement. Are we going to have children? How are we going to discipline them? Spiritual issues, church, how much church, how important is Christian education? All the value-driven issues need to be common in heart. There's a term that we used to use during the Cold War called detente. Detente was when Russia had enough nuclear weapons to destroy us. We had enough nuclear weapons to destroy them. We couldn't go to war. So where we chose to do was detente. Detente is peaceful coexistence. Peaceful, not because we agree. Peaceful because we we can't agree, but we can't afford to fight. Detente is agreeing to disagree on values and vision in marriage, and this is not that. There is no detente in marriage on values and vision. Well, you just think what you think about how we're going to spend money. I'm going to spend mine this way. I'm going to spend mine this way. I'm going to discipline the kids this way. You discipline the kids that. It doesn't work like that. You have to be united. If there's not unity in your home on values and vision, you will not ensure you will not enjoy the treasure and the intimacy that marriage is meant to provide. And because you're different, you have to talk it through. 
You have to spend time necessary in constructive conversation to work through those differences. And in order for your home to be what God wants it to be, you're going to need to have adequate time to talk through the issues so that you can come to an agreement, soulish unity on values and vision. So therefore, you're going to need sharing time, time when you can talk. I call it porch time, just everyday time where you can calibrate talk in terms of direction, in terms of action, in terms of uh, value direction. Uh, You need time together to work through your differences. And if you can't come to a conclusion, you get help. You get help before you start throwing things. You get help before you start using words that are destructive, not constructive. You learn how to communicate and work through your issues. You get allies. Hey, we're not agreeing. He thinks this. She thinks that. Here's why I think what I think. Here's why I think what I think. What do you think? In a multitude of counselors, there's safety, a good tool, I believe, and I used to use it often with people. You should collect a couple of couples around you that you meet monthly and have conversation about the health of your marriage, the direction of your marriage, and issues that you want to discuss regarding your marriage. Let other people weigh in. Obviously, people you trust, people that gather for that purpose, people who are willing, they know you, and they want to walk with you, and you say, listen, I'm thinking this, she's thinking that. What do you guys think? Get biblical counsel, enjoy wise contribution, work through your differences. So that you share a common soul, a common heart. We're sending our kids to Christian school. Well, I don't think we should. It costs too much money. We can barely afford the house we have. Well, that's a difference. You either need to value Christian education enough to unite around it or say we can't do it. We're investing in our house. We want margin. You just have to be on the same page. That's what this is about. This is about working through differences constructively with an attitude that promotes unity, not disharmony. This is the harmony pill. This is the unity pill that produces harmony. Harmony matters to God. Harmony matters to your testimony. Harmony affects your heart. Stress comes from disagreement. Indifference in your home. You cannot tolerate that. Look, she likes green, I like red. Not going to destroy your marriage if you have green carpet instead of red carpet, or the green car instead of the red car. In the end, doesn't matter. But value driven statements, they do matter. And you need to commit yourself to working through them. And to that end, I take you to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to give you a little paradigm I found very helpful just as a practical installment in the half hour or so that we have meant to prompt you to know how to think. I'm going to call this the attitudes that promote harmony, the humility that promotes harmony, the heart style that will help you work through differences. And listen, if you need money matters, church convictions, child rearing, career choices, relative relations, home issues, responsibilities, uh, decisions that are important, you need to be on the same page. You're going to work through it. You need to commit to resolving the issue. You need to commit to the time, to the effort, to the place, to the rules, how you're going to deal with it. You need to communicate with respect. 
You need to listen to seek to understand before you seek to be understood. You need to control your words and your tone. It needs to be constructive, not destructive. Consider the scriptures. My wife and I use a code word. I can be, I'm I'm never loud, but sometimes I can be forceful in a way that causes her to close down. So if I'm doing that, she'll use a word to cue me, you're doing that. I don't, uh, sometimes we use this, you may have heard of this, the spoon method, where if somebody's talking, they hold the spoon and you can't interrupt until they give you the spoon. Because I have heard, I know this is hard to believe, but I've actually heard the words, I'm not finished yet. And you may have never heard those words, but I have heard those words. So give her the spoon, let her talk. When she's done talking, I know she's done, rather than saying, I thought you were finished, that's why I started talking, which gets you nowhere. Wait till you get the spoon back, that's the evidence that it's your turn. I don't really, there's probably books in the back that are better at describing the tools that you can use. But what you want to commit to is we're going to communicate constructively, not destructively. And if we come to an impasse, we're going to get help. We're not going to have a crisis. We're not going to escalate this thing to the place where things are coming apart. Injury happens. Husbands, let me say this to you. Colossians 3.19, the two verbs to you. Husbands, love your wife and don't ever be harsh with her. It's interesting, isn't it? The first one you get, love your wife. Other centered, we talked about what love, love is. But the second verb, which is a negative, don't do this, don't ever be harsh with her. It comes from the Greek word pakria, which means to be stabbed. Don't act out of injury is really the way you want to hear that. The presumption is sometimes you're going to get injured in a relationship. It's just going to happen. Somebody's going to say something, it's injurious, disrespectful, hurtful. It's going to injure you. Don't speak and act out of that hurt. Pakria, the word for stab, is what engenders bitterness. Undealt with injury will create a retaliation unless there's release and forgiveness. That's why Ephesians 5 says, or Ephesians 4 at the end says, let all bitterness, same word, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, slander and clamor along with malice be put away from you. Let that stuff go. Unaddressed injury becomes bitterness. Bitterness becomes heat. That's frustration. Frustration bubbles out in anger. Anger on steroids is called wrath. And wrath gets expressed. Clamor is an altercation. It's a fight. Words, physical. Slander is I can't beat you by going toe-to-toe with you, so I'm going to get you from behind. And it's malicious. And you know why? Because you hurt me, and I deserved, I'm going to hurt you back. Husbands, love your wife, and don't ever be harsh with her. Why? You want your wife to stay soft. You want her to stay vulnerable and responsive. When you're harsh to a woman, you harden the woman, and a hard woman is not a good teammate. It's certainly not a life-giving marriage. And often, husbands harden wives out of justified frustration. 
doesn't say wives make your husbands love you. It doesn't say husbands or wives make your husband not be unkind. That's a work of the Holy Spirit that a husband has to own. You follow because you want to. He responds in a constructive way, never being harsh. And listen, it's not just words. It's tone. It's the way you furrow your brow. It's the fire in your eyes. 60% of communication is nonverbal. So it's not just what I say to her. It's how I say it. And if I don't get a response, the solution is not to escalate the encounter. Raise my voice, increase my tone, or God forbid, I become physical in trying to accomplish through my frustration what it is I desire or to stop what I don't desire. Don't ever be harsh with her. That's a positive lover. Don't ever be harsh with her because harshness destroys intimacy and intimacy and unity go together. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. Here we go. We've got 25 minutes to cover a paragraph that may be one of the most important in the book of Peter, 1 Peter. It comes after an exhortation to live in a way that causes unbelievers to believe. Verse 12, chapter 2, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. They're God glorifiers instead of God mockers. When Jesus returns, they're worshipers instead of slanderers because they've been transformed by the way you live. And then he's going to describe how you ought to live. And the fundamental theme is... You recognize rightful authority and respond properly. That's verses 13 through verse 6, chapter 3. Even if you're not rightly treated, you respond rightly. Recognize and respect rightful authority, rightful authority even if they don't respect you and even if they don't treat you right. That's the section that precedes the paragraph we're going to look at. All the way into your home. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Excellent conduct provokes transforming change. Right, recognizing and respecting rightful authority, even if they don't behave rightly or respect you. That's what this paragraph is about. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, a reference to historical validation, for in this way, in former times, the holy women, women of God also, who hoped in God, not in their husband or in their circumstances, they hoped in God, used to adorn themselves. How? By being submissive. That's to voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of someone else in a respectful way to their own husbands. Verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. The word Lord is not as bad as it might sound. It's just a term of respect. If you see Lord, it's like feels like it's over the top. It was a respect term. It's what she would have said to acknowledge who he was and her honor and regard for him. Be like you saying husband. It's a term of respect. 
And you have become her children if you do what is right. In other words, you're in her family of behavior like her in terms of your emotional, relational, and spiritual DNA if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Why would it say that? Because you could be afraid. You can think, listen, if I don't protect myself or defend myself or stop this bad behavior by some other mechanism, this is, this is bad. And I'm not talking about staying in an abusive relationship. That is not what I'm saying. Obviously, you have to seek protection, and you have to do what you need to do to avoid the abusive husband. This is the unholy husband who's living in a way that dishonors the Lord, but it's not like your life's at stake. It's you're, you're frightened that it won't change. Verse 7, you husbands likewise in the same way. In what way? In the same relational way you respect people for their rightful position, you respect her now. You husbands likewise behave in such a way that causes unbelievers to believe. Likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, that's physically weaker, since she's a woman. In other words, care for her, protect her, regard her, and grant her honor as a fellow heir. Treat her with respect and protect her. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Implication is, if you mistreat her, God will not hear you. And he's going to validate that in the next paragraph, which is the one I want to focus on in closing. Now, I want you to see the first three words of verse 8 to sum up. I'm going to boil it all down. And I'm going to communicate the heart style of a Christian that is meant to model the things that provoke positive change in a situation that is difficult. It is the validating evidence of true Christianity and is the transforming ingredient in any home. This will maximize your marriage, and it's all about harmony and humility. He's going to sum everything up, and he's going to say it this way. To sum up, bottom line, let all be harmonious. Now, I want you to notice the word all, no exceptions and no exclusions. So this is for everybody. Let all be harmonious. The word harmonious means I want to get along. I'm not divisive. I'm not uh, somebody who looks for areas to disagree. I want to get along heart. This is not making a person think the same way. It is cultivating and displaying a spirit that leads to oneness and unity of heart. It is the spirit which promotes common ground, and it focuses on the place of agreement. It is not negative. It is not argumentative. It is unifying attitude. I want to get along. I want to find where we agree. It promotes harmony. It's exactly what you don't see when it comes to the political parties today. Nobody highlights anything positive. Everything highlighted is negative. Negative about the other person. Negative about what they think. Negative about what they do. This is not that. It's the opposite of that. I'm looking for places to agree. Let all be harmonious. Let all be, secondly, sympathetic. Sympathetic says, I want to see it from your side of it. 
I want to understand it from your vantage point. Pathos to feel, sim with. I want to feel with you. I want to put myself in your place and in your shoes, and I want to understand. I want to see what you're saying and feeling before I speak. If you're going to have unity in your home on areas of disagreement, number one, you're going to want to get along. Number two, you're going to want to understand. That's this. I want to understand. I want to have an other-centered attitude that seeks to understand where you're coming from and why, you're, while you are, why you are coming from that vantage point. So promote harmony, show sympathy, thirdly, be brotherly. Now, man and a woman, brotherly, that's because you're of the father's family. You're born of the same spiritual womb. If you're born again, you're family. This means philos, to have affection, to demonstrate friendliness in the context of your family relationship. This is warmth. This is affection you can feel. This is brotherhood. This is the warmth of family affection. Let me tell you what it says, bottom line. I value you. You matter to me. We're family. I want to understand what you're saying. I want to feel it in a way that gives you confidence. I get it. I want to promote unity. And I value and respect you. We're family. We are not enemies. We're family. Fourthly, kind-hearted. Kind-hearted is only used a couple times in the New Testament. You'll recognize both of them. Time number one, Luke chapter 10. Kind-hearted, the good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan says, I see a need, I want to meet that need. It's inconvenient to me, but I'll stop anyway. I don't care who you are, where you are, what's happened to you. You may have been in this trouble because you put yourself in a bad position. The road to Jericho to Jerusalem was called the robber's road. Everybody knew that if you traveled that road, you were at risk. The guy that got beat up on the robber's road could have been treated as if you got what you deserve. You're in that trouble because you earned that opportunity. The Good Samaritan, that's the story of Luke 10, was moved with good-heartedness to serve and help a perceived cultural enemy, a Jew, when he was a Samaritan. He, a Samaritan, having been mistreated by Jews, considered barbaric, considered worse than animals, considered a mixed breed, You couldn't eat with them. That's why Jesus was accused by sitting at the well with the woman who was a Samaritan. Not just because she was a woman, because she was a Samaritan. You just didn't do that. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what's happened to you. It doesn't matter if it's inconvenient to me. I'm good hearted. I'm going to stop and I'm going to help. I'm going to see a need and I'm going to meet a need at my cost. You want harmony in your home? Have that. Have a good dose of that. This is good heartedness says I have an attitude which stops to help and it races to reconcile. Here's the other place it's used. Luke 15. You'll know this story. A father gave an inheritance to a son prematurely. The son spent it all and wasted it all on just living. He comes to himself in a pig sty and comes home. On his way home, the Bible says the father lifted up his eyes, saw his son who had acted shamefully. And it says 
he was moved with good-heartedness, and he ran to him. He embraced him. He reconciled him. He threw a feast for him. Good-heartedness sees a need, meets a need, and when there's injury and loss and sin, it seeks to reconcile with enthusiasm. It races, it stops to serve, it races to reconcile. Good-heartedness at its root is a heart for healing and a heart for helping. Harmony comes from that. Fifth, the next ingredient in this grocery list, humble in spirit. Humble in spirit means to be low of mind, not because you're not smart. You lower yourself. You see yourself as lesser. You'll see it in the, this actually means to bow down. It actually means to lower yourself, to bow or to defer. You see it in Asian cultures where there is a a bowing. It simply means this, you first. I defer to you. You go first. It's, we would call it, it's a courteous attitude. It's a courteous mindset. This is not because you're weak. This is not out of an emasculated image of self. This is not inferiority. This is an expression of humility. Humble heart says, you go first. You pick first. You choose. It defers. It displays deferring humility. Harmony is the product of promoting areas of agreement, showing sympathy, understanding, being respectful and family-friendly, having a heart to help and to heal, and displaying deferring humility. That promotes unity which is transforming in its impact. Now, I want you to watch application that comes out of that heart style of harmony and humility. Verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, which is the word evil, kakos, is damage for damage. Or insult for insult. Everybody understands what that is. You hurt me with words, I'm hurting you back with words. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But notice this adversative conjunction. On the other hand, giving a blessing instead. I'm going to give you the bottom line for marriage. Humility which says, you first and I'm going to respond in reverse. You injure me, I'm going to bless you. You're harsh with words to me. I'm going to be gracious with you. The word blessing means two things. It means to pray a blessing. Eulageo means to speak something positive in prayer for someone else's benefit. God bless John. God make him, make him prosperous today. Yeah, but he hurt me. God bless him. Help him. The Jews were big on cursing. They had a whole series of curses they would learn to ask God to bring judgment on John. Your Your harmonious heart, your humble heart says, no, God, I want you to bless him even though he's not blessing me. I don't want damage for damage. I'm going to give a blessing, hear the words, instead. The other use of the word eulageo, you, you hear the word eulogy in that? Eulogy means you actually speak good things about someone else. 
You find something positive to say about somebody who's not behaving in a positive way. I buried some scoundrels in my ministry. People that it's hard to find something good to say. But people manage to find good things to say. I've never heard anybody stand up and go, that guy's a scoundrel. Even if it's a guy that wasn't the guy he should have been, you find something positive and truthful to say about that bad guy. This is a commitment to say, you first, I'm responding in reverse. I'm going to ask God to bless you, and I'm going to find something good to say to you about you. That's harmony promoting. That's unifying. Two people are different. That kind of a response promotes a kind of benefit that's hard to imagine. Now, wrapping up, I want you to see the rest of this passage just as it unfolds. Look at verse 9, the first reason why you ought to consider this, giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, this is the inheritance blessing that belongs to you as a child of God. You do know that everything that God has for you by way of inheritance blessing is not waiting on you. Some of it's available to you. This is not all about eternal blessing. This is present tense blessing that would have been yours that's forfeited as a child of God because of your behavior before God. My father trusted his son, so he blessed me with the privilege of using things he owned as if I owned them. I'm a pilot. He owned a plane. At 310... On every weekday, I was out of school. Some of those weekdays, I would leave my school by 310 and I would be airborne by 410. I'd fly around southern New Jersey where I grew up. I'd go to the airport by myself. I'd prep the plane. I'd check the plane. I'd start the plane, Piper Cub. I'd climb in the plane and I'd fly around New Jersey. I never had to ask. It wasn't mine. It was his, but I was his son. That's how it is with God. Everything he has, you are a joint heir of heaven. The only restrictor is wisdom and whether you qualify to receive the blessing he wants to provide. You forfeit that when you refuse to live like this. When it says, give a blessing instead, for you were called to inherit a blessing, what he's trying to say is, you could have something you would otherwise forfeit. When I turned 17 years old, when I could get my driver's license, my dad had a 1967 GTO, fire engine red, white convertible top, white bucket seats, factory four-speed, 400 cubic inches, 390 horsepower. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You can tell it matters to me. He sold it the week I got my license. I call that child abuse. That's what I told my therapist. No, he said, why did he do that? He let you fly his plane. Yeah, he did, but he didn't want me to drive that car. Maybe it's because he knew I was the guy that could drive the cars off the road. The father's wisdom dictates the blessings he releases. And the child's qualifications attitudinally define whether he will release blessings. Some of the things you forfeit are not because you couldn't. 
It's because you're not qualified to receive it. And if you're not willing to give a blessing instead, you will not receive a blessing from him. And then it gets even better if that's not enough. He goes on to say in verse 9, or verse 10 rather, for let him, here's another conjunction for here's another ground or reason to motivate you let him who means to love life and see good days refrain that means cease his tongue from evil that's injurious speech in response to injurious speech his lips from speaking guile guile means it's manipulative it's a greek word for you use words like gaming tools like weapons cease your tongue from injury in speech, your lips from manipulative weapon-like behavior, let him turn away from evil and do good. If you want to love life, you first respond in reverse. Don't use words like weapons. Give a blessing instead. Don't do injurious things, hurtful things. Do good. That's beneficial things. And then verse 11 at the end, let him seek peace and pursue it. That's proactive. That's desiring to resolve the conflict. I'm aiming at it. I'm not passive. I'm proactive. Some of us, when we get injured, we just, we just withdraw. You can as a Christian. You have to be proactive because reconciliation matters. So if you want to love life, anybody want to love life? Me too. Anybody want to inherit a blessing? Me too. You want to see good days? Me too. Have this kind of heart. Respond in reverse. Pursue reconciliation when difference and discord comes. Seek peace and pursue it. I don't have time to talk through all those words. Last thing it says, verse 12. For let for the eyes of the Lord, another conjunction which says, let me motivate you one more time. If blessing doesn't motivate you, If good days don't motivate you, think about this one. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And in this context, it's right relationships. And his ears attend, righteous in this way, relationally. And his ears, God's ears, attend to their prayer. But on the other hand, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evil in what way? relational evil, giving back what is deserved, not responding in this way, but in a destructive way. They don't seek peace. They don't give a blessing instead. They're not you first. It's me first. It's my way and only my way. God says, you want me as your advocate or do you want me to be your adversary? Because when it says set his face against, it means he's opposed. He's holding you back. My little boy used to go toe-to-toe with me. It was funny when he was little because my arms were longer than his, and he'd be flailing like crazy and having him by the forehead just like that. Couldn't make no progress. Couldn't get where he wanted to go. Couldn't do what he wanted to do. I'm bigger than him. You know who's bigger than you? You want me to be your ally? My ears attendant to your prayer, or do you want me to be your adversary? You pick. First Peter is one of the most powerful, purposeful, relational passages in all of the Bible. This is the heart style of harmony and humility. You first respond in reverse. It'll invite blessing or it will deny it. 
Unity matters. And this is how harmony happens. Can you say amen? Amen. Father, it's been a good weekend. Thank you for the opportunity to spend time with these precious people. I do pray. This is your word. It is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is capable of doing work in us that otherwise cannot be done. Would you take these seeds of truth, plant them deep, and I pray as we start it that they will be doers and not hearers only, that they'll be cooperative partners with heaven. He who began a good work will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Help us all to be cooperative with this plain exhortation about what it does and what it is when we respond correctly. It not only models Christ, It not only invokes and provokes change in people, but it invites a blessing we couldn't imagine and is so alien to our natural man, but so like the supernatural son. The centerpiece of this passage is Jesus who stood in front of scorners and mockers and uttered not a word, but entrusted himself to his father. Lord, help us to be trusting you so that we can honor you. To that end, I ask it for us all that we would have a maximized marriage, a life-giving home, and one that models you and provokes interest from those who don't know you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.